This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is not only a great song, uh, but a birthday bumper music selection from our friend Mary Riley, who is a a great listener of this show, a friend of mine for probably about 25 years. She's a a great lady and a very successful businesswoman, a very generous person, somebody that's been active in politics for a long time. She used to be the uh, chairperson of the Republican Party in uh, the community that I live in, but she's really loved by everybody, Democrats and Republicans alike, and a great person. So uh, a happy birthday to Mary Riley. Thank you for all your support of me and this program over the years. Mary's someone who has had a lot of health challenges over the years, and she has just always had such an incredibly positive attitude and um, she's somebody that I uh, greatly, greatly admire. So I think uh, she's just a, a terrific person and uh, wishing her a happy birthday today and hope all of her wishes come true. Bob Crane is an interesting person. I think most of us know Bob Crane from the classic TV show Hogan's Heroes. And when you think about it, it really it seems an odd fit for a sitcom. And yet Hogan here Hogan's Heroes to this day remains one of the most watched um, sitcoms and beloved sitcoms of all time. But it takes place in a POW camp in in Nazi Germany. 
And it is not exactly kind of the kind of subject matter that you would think that is ripe for a sitcom. And yet, it not only was hilarious, it ran for 168 episodes, six seasons, um, and it is something that is just incredible. Absolutely incredible. We're hoping to get a hold of uh, John Hook. Oh, okay. So I, I'm, I'm trying to signal you guys and asking if we have him. We have him. John Hook is something of a legend in the uh, Arizona, specifically the Phoenix, Arizona media market. He's worked in a bunch of different places, but he's um, these days an anchor and reporter for Fox 10 in Phoenix, Arizona. But he's the author of a, a terrific book, which a lot of people have talked about and referred to as sort of the definitive book on the mystery of of uh, Bob Crane. The book very simply is called Who Killed Bob Crane? John, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. I appreciate you staying up late with me. Frank, it's an honor to be on your show on the big WABC. And and a lot of other great affiliates around the country, too. But I appreciate uh, I appreciate that. And uh, you got a lot of fans out here as well. Uh, before we get into Bob Crane's death, tell me uh, or tell people that may not have watched Hogan's Heroes Give us kind of the thumbnail sketch of who was Bob Crane as a performer, as a person. Why was he such a big deal? Well, first of all, he was a huge radio personality at KNX in L.A. And in fact, he cut his teeth in Hornell, New York, on a small station and in Connecticut in a small station. And they started noticing in the New York market that this guy, Bob Crane, with his madcap morning show, was siphoning listeners from the big CBS station in New York at the time. So they got this idea, we're going to find this guy and we're going to move him out to KNX in LA and get him out of here because he's hurting us. So they bring Bob Crane out in the mid-50s, I think it was 56, to KNX, and that show just explodes. And not only does it put Crane on the map, Producers in Hollywood would wake up listening to this guy and they started thinking, hmm, what does this guy look like? Who is this guy? And he was interviewing all the luminaries at the time, Lucille Ball, Jack Lemmon, Ronald Reagan. He had everybody on that show. And it was such a crazy morning show. It was insane. The, the commercials he would do were nuts. He would turn them into a spoof and people loved the guy. And pretty soon he started getting bit parts on on television, the Donna Reed show, and eventually gets a reading for Hogan's Heroes and his career just explodes. You know, so it's not unheard of for people to make that transition from radio personality to actor. Other people have done it. Uh, Jay Thomas comes most immediately to mind. But I don't know of anybody that has made this transition as successfully as Bob Crane did, becoming going from being a star radio personality to a star actor on one of the biggest uh, sitcoms there was in, in Hogan's Heroes. What was it about Bob Crane as an actor that made him so appealing? Or was it a function of luck? Right place, right time, right show? Yeah, it was all of that. But I think, as you know, the radio exposes you mm. and who you are. You can't hide when you're on there for four hours a day. You, you have to become comfortable in your own skin. And he had great comedic timing. He had honed it on radio, and it translated beautifully on television. He pretty much was the same guy on that show as he was off. He was a womanizer. 
He was charming. Mm. He was funny, quick-witted, bright guy, very talented. And, you know, he got that part. He had trepidation about it for all the reasons you, you listed at the beginning. Yeah, I mean, you know, thinking about a, a, a sitcom <laughs> framed in a POW camp in Nazi Germany, it's pretty crazy. But the public loved the irreverent humor and that it spoofed the Germans. People loved it. And by the way, very popular in Germany. Really? Yes. I, I People mean, got a kick out of it. I, I don't know that I realize that. I still watch it now. It's on MeTV and some of the other uh, networks, and uh, it's a lot of fun. I still find it fun. All right. So, so it's a great show. Uh, n- no doubt about it. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with uh, John Hook. He's the author of Who Killed Bob Crane. You can learn more about the book and purchase it at WhoKilledBobCrane.com. John, uh, what, does, what, what is the official story about Bob Crane's death? What do we know for a fact that's not the subject of debate? He was bludgeoned in his apartment. Um, after Hogan's Heroes went off the air, he started touring the country doing dinner theater. You know, at this point, he's trying to pay the bills, and he's living off the fame of being Colonel Hogan. And people still flock to see him. This is 1978 in Scottsdale. So he's touring the country doing this dinner theater show, Beginner's Luck. It was a four-person cast. He was pretty much running the show and directing it as well. And it ends up here in Scottsdale in 1978, in June of 1978, for a two-week run. And um, near the final run of that show, the last few days, he turns up bludgeoned in his apartment, massive head injuries, hit by some type of blunt instrument twice and he never knew what hit him. They, the authorities, police, the medical examiner, they believe that crane was asleep when he was bludgeoned. There was no forced entry into the apartment. So the working theory was whoever got in was let in willingly by Bob crane, no sign of a struggle. He was asleep in bed when he was slammed in the left side of his head as he was sleeping in the fetal position. And uh, I know there was a trial, and uh, the person that they put on trial for this murder was acquitted. Was that the correct uh, verdict, in your view? Uh, Oh, boy, that's up for debate, because our DNA testing on the blood, which we tested some 40 years later, uh, came back with a very shocking finding. Um, it gets into some heavy forensics and I don't know how deep you want to go, but basically the guy who was with crane during that week and a guy who went out with him on the road, palling around with him was John Carpenter. John Carpenter was introduced to crane by Richard Dawson, who played Peter Newkirk on the Hogan's hero show. You know, you know, him. and, and from, is that, that's the same Richard Dawson from family feud. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Another charming guy. Um, who really thought he should be the star of Hogan's Heroes, by the way. So there was always some tension Hmm. between Dawson and Crane. Dawson was uh, theatrically trained, was on the stage, felt like he was the talent, and who was this Bob Crane guy coming in, taking the lead role. So there was always some tension there. Um, John Carpenter was one of the first big national videotape salesmen for home video use. He introduced it to Red Skelton. He introduced it even to Elvis. So Carpenter had been around big stars before, and and he had um, he had taught Dawson about this technology. 
People wanted it in their homes, really reserved for the rich and famous at that time. It wasn't widely available to the public. And uh, Dawson introduces on the set of Hogan's Carpenter to Bob Crane, and they struck up a fast friendship. And Carpenter taught Crane everything there was to know about videotape technology, home video. Because Crane was, at that time, he was a sex addict, even though there wasn't a formal definition for it at the time. He would womanize and he would take Polaroids of women in various states of undress and performing sex acts on him. And he found that really, you know, alluring. But then when he could put it on video, that was even more enticing. And so everywhere he went, the video camera, the tape decks were in tow and Crane was doing, you know, his own home homegrown porn, um, you know, before. Kardashian before Britney Spears, you know, he was doing that way before all of those people came on the scene. There was a film about um, Bob Crane about 21 years ago. I saw it at the time, maybe 22 years ago, called Autofocus. A lot of the listeners may remember it. I'm sure that you have seen it. What did you make of this film, both as a movie and for its historical accuracy? I I thought it brilliantly captured the relationship between Crane and Carpenter, which was this um, an odd relationship. You know, for two guys in approaching, you know, midlife, in midlife, Crane was only a few weeks away from turning 50 when he was murdered. Carpenter was roughly the same age. They were both 49. It's a little odd to be hanging around with a guy when you're 49, hanging this, you know, hanging around this other guy who's 49, it was a little bit odd, but they shared this obsession with betting women and videotaping it. Hmm. And Carpenter was kind of the Pied Piper who went along with the whole thing, facilitated, taped some of this stuff and kept Crane, you know, plied with all the technology that he needed, cords, cameras, new gear. If something broke, he could fix it because he was a salesman at the time for a Kai. And so they end up together often on the road. Carpenter would meet Crane on the road, usually for four or five days a month. He'd show up where Crane was performing, and they'd hang out. They'd try to bed women and uh, were usually quite successful. On this trip, Carpenter was not successful. On this trip to Phoenix, to Scottsdale, Carpenter actually stayed in a different place. He didn't stay with Crane. And Crane's son, Bob Jr., who wrote the foreword for my book, um, he really laid out that his dad had gotten tired of Carpenter hanging around. Hmm. He said he was becoming a pain in the ass. He was becoming like kind of a clingy woman, to, to put it mildly. And that Crane was going to make some changes because some of this was starting to get out because he was in the middle of a bitter divorce with his wife at the time who was Patty, who was Fraulein Hilda on Hogan. They met on the set. He left his first wife and married her. So his second marriage is falling apart, and his life is kind of spinning, and some of this is ending up in the tabloids, and it's hurting his ability to get work. He was working for Disney at the time, doing uh, uh, one of these movies for Disney, and some of this stuff was getting out, and his agent was telling him, you know, this stuff is going to hurt you. So Crane was trying to calm it down, and the, and the feeling was at the time among police, among people who knew Bob, 
that Bob was going to emancipate himself from John Carpenter and that that might have led Carpenter to want to kill him. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So, um, and if people are just tuning in, we're talking with uh, John Hook. He studied the um, murder of Bob Crane backwards and forward. It's all covered in his book, Who Killed Bob Crane, which you could check out at whokilledbobcrane.com. So what was the jury thinking when they acquitted John Carpenter? What was the uh, lack of evidentiary findings that they found to be exculpatory? Well, imagine during October of 1994, what was going on right. at that time. O.J., right? O.J. Simpson. O.J. Simpson. And all we heard about over and over was DNA, DNA, DNA. So the jury, they're deliberating and taking this case on right at the height of O.J. And all they're hearing about is DNA. But at that time, the DNA, which had been done and tested in the early 90s, this was DNA in its infancy. They, the jury's waiting for it. Where's the DNA to prove that blood in John Carpenter's car came from Bob Crane? We know that blood in John Carpenter's car that was found was type B positive blood. That's only found in 9% of the population. Bob Crane was B positive. So right there, you've got a very strong link. But the jury was like, well, that's fine. We know it's B positive, but how do we know it's from Bob Crane? And because of OJ happening at that exact same time, they're waiting for the linchpin, somebody to come forward and, and say, not only is it B positive, but the DNA says this blood in John Carpenter's rental car is from Bob Crane. And police surmise that blood got there from the murder weapon being leaned up against the passenger door and depositing streaks and smears on the felt on the door and the vinyl. And so when I came on board in, what, 2016, my theory was, could we find that original blood from the case and retest it? using modern DNA science. That was the entire predicate for my book, for the special we did on it. And so we got permission from the Maricopa County Attorney's wow. Office down here to go in and test this stuff. And Frank, I'm telling you, as a reporter, this just is never done. When I went to Cellmark, which did the original testing on Bob Crane's blood back in the 90s, and it came back inconclusive because, you know, the stuff was very crude back then. They told me, they said, we've never had a reporter submit cold case DNA for testing. So we had to get unprecedented access and agreement from the Maricopa County Attorney's Office down here to let us do this. And fortunately, Bill Montgomery, the, the county attorney at the time, he told me, he said, look, we tried our best. We put Carpenter on trial. He was acquitted mainly because of a lack of DNA. If you guys can learn something that we couldn't, and give the family some resolution, great, do it. 
obviously I know you're a journalist in Arizona and this is where the murder took place. But what was it that sparked your interest to want to dive uh, so deep into this case, especially so many years after the trial? I mean, I think a lot of people would say, all right, jury came to its verdict. Uh, They they made their decision. Let me move on and find uh, other things to investigate. What sparked your interest in this case specifically, John? It was an interview with Bob Crane Jr., who was coming out with a book. This was in 2015. I interviewed him at the station about his book. We talked about his father. We really hit it off, made a connection. Bob Jr. is an amazing guy. And I just felt in him an incredible sadness that he did not have an answer about who killed his father. And so after that interview, I started thinking about it in the days and weeks that followed. And I just kind of was ruminating on the whole subject. And I thought, boy, you know, where is all that evidence from that case? Is it still around? And then I started thinking about DNA. And I'm thinking, boy, they tested this stuff in the early 90s. They got nothing. But DNA has come light years. They used to need a sample that was the size of a dime of blood to test for DNA in the early 90s. Now they were at a point where a touch of a finger, the head of a pen was enough to test. And I thought, how about if we go around again and give this another whirl, take another bite of the apple and see if we can get some answers. And that's what we did. And fortunately they let us do it. The, so you believe then it sounds like that the most likely scenario is that he was killed by John Henry Carpenter. Yes. I think the preponderance of evidence shows that. Um, mainly because of Carpenter's actions after the murder. Keep in mind, Carpenter and Crane are palling around. Carpenter is supposed to be taken to the airport that morning on, on June 29th, 1978, by Bob Crane. It was in Crane's day planner next to his bed, which was spattered with Crane's blood and brain tissue next to his bed. Uh, that was the plan, and the plan suddenly changed, and John Carpenter left in haste that morning early to go back to California. And then after he gets back to California in the afternoon, he starts making some very odd phone calls. One to Bob Crane's apartment asking if Bob's around. The cops were there at the time. He called twice. Then he called the windmill dinner theater where he was, where Crane was performing said, is Bob performing tonight? And they said yes, but they knew something was up. The people at the windmill had caught wind that something was going on at Bob Crane's apartment. They were kind of rattled. They didn't know the extent of it. And then he calls a second time to the windmill and tells the woman, you sound sad. It's a fishing expedition. And the police believe that these phone calls were Carpenter trying to find out whether Bob had been discovered, his body, and how far along they were in their investigation. And the cops found it very, very strange. Not only that, Carpenter calls Bob Crane Jr., Bob's son, and says, hey, I'm back in California. If you need anything, let me know. And, and Bob Crane said Carpenter had never made a call to him like that before. He found it so odd, hmm. and it distressed him that Bob Jr. called Bob Crane's apartment looking for his dad, and a co-star who was with Bob uh, discovered his body, picked up the phone. The cops told her to pick up the phone 
And she was instructed to say that Bob was out and that he wasn't around. So Bob Jr. just said, okay. But he called his dad's apartment because he was so distressed by Carpenter's phone call. So all of those kinds of things make you wonder what the heck is going on. Interesting. That's all, circum- that's all circumstantial. But what we wanted to dive into was the DNA, and that's what we did. Uh, if people are just tuning in, we're talking about the uh, passing, the tragic passing of uh, Bob Crane, probably best known. I don't think there's any question that he was best known for his work on Hogan's Heroes. Colonel Hogan, I am very busy today. Dispatches from Berlin. What is it? I'm here to make a complaint on behalf of my men. Oh, a complaint. Not sufficient entertainment, perhaps. No, you're funny enough. (laughs) Or the food you take from German mouths. I suppose you would prefer some wine or some caviar. Matter of fact, I'm very fond of caviar. Have you got any trouble, but if you should happen to be near a post office when they transfer you to the Russian front? Uh, we're talking about his murder with uh, with John Hook, who has studied this case backwards and forward. Hey, John, whenever I delve into one of these unsolved uh, cases from years ago, the question that I'll get from at least one cynical listener or caller is inevitably, who cares? It's decades later. Uh, John Carpenter is dead. Bob Crane is dead. There's no chance even for a civil judgment against John Carpenter. What's the sense in people like you and me still having this out and still trying to find out the truth about what happened. Why not simply let sleeping dogs lie? People don't like um, unanswered questions and loose ends. It's just a human nature. They want to know what happened, whether it's in a court of law, whether it's in a book, whether it's in a documentary. Uh, they want to know what the heck happened. They don't like loose ends generally. And I think about Jean Benet Ramsey. This is the same sure. kind of thing. And, and I look at Bob Crane's murder in the same way. I mean, the investigators down here would tell you um, that Bob Crane's murder down here was kind of our Kennedy assassination. So many theories, so many hypotheses of what happened. But in the end, it's actually a very simple murder case. It just got very complicated. Well said. Uh, John, I find your work just really convincing and impressive on this. I hope people check out the book. They can do so at whokilledbobcrane.com. John, thanks for staying up late with us. Appreciate it. Frank, a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's my pleasure. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you can give me a call at 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.